Heavenly Father, uh, we are back, Father. We're back at your feet and in one another's company and, and under the instruction of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for that opportunity. Thank you for the hope of a new year to serve you and, and to see all the wonderful things you plan to do in and through and around us, Father. We ask, Lord, that you would always keep us in your will this year, that where we uh, seek to serve you and, and to step out in faith and and in confidence and in hope, Father, we pray you be there with us the whole way, showing us where to go and what to do in our homes, in our schools, in our businesses, our families, wherever we serve, Father. I pray that uh, you give us not only the heart and the desire to do it, but it's such clear direction that we can't help but go in the right way. Uh, for those of us, Father, who have, uh, still have uh, hesitation or have concerns, fears, uh, perhaps just don't know where to serve, Father, don't have a clear understanding of how to serve, Father, I pray that this might be the year in which our thought of, of walking with you uh, becomes one of serving you as well, one in which we put our, our shoulder to the yoke. We, we, we take the work on that you have asked us to take on so that uh, you could be glorified through our life. And we ask, Lord, for that uh, courage and for that desire. Uh, Father, with all these needs, whether it's those in service or those seeking to serve, Father, we can't serve without an understanding of your will, without an understanding of what causes you to be pleased and so we ask lord that our instruction would be useful to that end as well we would be taught how and where and why we serve and that the word would be an instrument a lamp to our feet that would guide us in in that way let uh, the study tonight just be one step along that path father let us be diligent to continue in study throughout this year Uh, let tonight be just the start but i pray father it would be a good start and that your word would speak clearly to us tonight we pray this in jesus name Amen. All right, well, as you remember, David has defeated Goliath. He has saved Saul's army. That's the chapter we studied last, chapter 17. And at the very end of chapter 17, we had learned that David, after he won the victory, had celebrated by taking Goliath's head and his sword as trophies. And you remember we said late in David's life, he takes the head of Goliath into Jerusalem with him, even as he enters that city. So obviously the victory made a significant impact. On David, And so it should. David just defeated an enemy so strong that no one else in Israel would dare even engage with him. David, on the other hand, ran right out into the field without so much as a moment of hesitation. He was already calculating his reward at the first of hearing of the bounty. So this is a moment David should remember. It's one that we remember. More importantly, it's one that defines David for the rest of his life. Forevermore now, David is known as the giant slayer. He is the fearless one who saved Saul's army. But in this victory is sown seeds of future conflict for David. I doubt David could have even imagined at the time the years of trouble that were in store for him as a result of this victory. And all that comes from it is according to God's purpose. Because not only did David take note of this victory, so did Saul. Saul, who knew David already, now sees him in a different way. It causes Saul to take a very close look at this young man and bring him close to him and to his family. Earlier in chapter 17, David had stepped forward to fight Goliath by coming to Saul and saying, I'm ready to take the bounty that you offer. And when that happened, you remember, Saul sized David up, or tried to anyway, and he took one look at him and concluded that David had no chance at all of winning against Goliath. So, thinking this was going to be a certain loss for David, Saul goes on this ridiculous effort to try to shore up the odds a little bit by putting his armor on David. Do you remember that scene, right? 
It's in verse 38. I'm going to jump back there just long enough to read it again. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. So David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. And David took them off. You remember that? One guy had said it was like Saul tried to turn David into an armadillo. I think we said at one point, right? Well, in that moment, when Saul put his royal armor on David, he was symbolically crowning David as king. Now, David had already been anointed as such by Samuel, but the only thing standing between David and the throne was the current occupier, Saul. So it was very significant that Saul would place his armor on David. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that Saul had that in mind, or even that David himself recognized the symbology of it at the time. But we can see it. But what was even more significant in that moment was David's response. He cannot wear the armor, he says, because he has not tested it. But in the original Hebrew, the words aren't quite as clear as that. They can be translated a couple of different ways. It is equally legitimate to translate David's words as, I have not been tested. In other words, David, again, perhaps unknowingly, is prophetically declaring why he could not yet assume the role as king. Because before you can take that position from Saul, David had to be tested by God so that he could be prepared and proven to be ready for the job. And ironically, the cause of that testing will be Saul himself. Because it will be his increasing paranoia that will lead to the testing of David before David can take the throne. So we go now to the end of chapter 17 where we last left off. That's in verse 55. And we read from there. Now, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this young man? And Abner said, By your life, O king, I do not know. The king said, You inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So Saul inquires, who is this young man after all? Now we know Saul called for David to soothe him earlier in the story. Whenever the evil spirit came upon Saul and tormented him, David was the one that Saul discovered could soothe him by playing music for him. Remember that? So then we ask the question, how does he fail to recognize him now? Well, one answer is that Saul probably never took a very close look at David before this. I mean, he was just like any other servant in the court. What king gives much attention to anyone who serves him in the court? As long as that guy shows up and I feel better, keep calling that guy, whoever he is. Saul inquires of the commander at this point, Abner, who is this guy? Now I need to know who this guy is because he's just done something miraculous, obviously, and Abner doesn't know either. Probably, again, for the same reason Saul didn't know. Who would have paid attention to a 17-year-old harpist? So Abner goes, gets the guy, brings him, of course. David comes, holding Goliath's head in his hand. Saul asks his name, and David answers. He is the son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. After Saul won his first victory for Israel, back when we were studying Saul's life, the response from the people at that time was exactly as you would have expected, right? The vast majority of Israel supported Saul as their new king and leader, though there were that few that rejected him initially, and then even in time, those who rejected him initially came around later just for their own sake, when it became clear it was either support Saul or be killed. Now, though, David's won his victory, and you would expect him to enjoy a similar result. But the result is actually going to be a lot more complicated than you might expect, certainly more complicated than it was for Saul. And that sends us into chapter 18. Verse 1. Now, it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul that the soul of Jonathan was knit 
to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul sent him over the men of war. And it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So at the conclusion of the battle, we're told the soul of Jonathan is knit to David. Now, the story of David and Jonathan is a favorite for a lot of Bible students. It's one that that is very tender. It's very beautiful. It's a meaningful story of self-sacrifice, of humility, of pure godly love of one for another. The story will carry through the whole of this book from this point forward. Jonathan, as you probably already know, you should remember, is one of the sons of Saul, the heir apparent in this story to the throne of Israel. That means, of course, that if Saul were to die, Jonathan would be expected by the people to take Saul's place and rule. But we also know that it's not God's plan that that would happen, that God has planned for David to be the next king. We know that as well. So, under normal human circumstances, you would expect these two men to be rivals and fierce enemies. In human terms, David is Jonathan's greatest enemy. For it was the norm in that day, still is in many places today, that when there is a change in leadership within a monarchy, those who would otherwise have had a right to continue the rule of the original monarchy will be considered then to be enemies of the new monarchy and will be killed so that there is no claim to the throne from some other usurper. So if David becomes king, Jonathan's dead. If Jonathan becomes king, David is dead. These two men have no reason to be friends at any level. But instead, we're told at the outset of this chapter, they form a close and abiding relationship. Notice we're told that the soul of Jonathan is knit to David. And Samuel's choice of words stands out here for a number of reasons. Souls aren't knitted together just every day, right? That phrase is very unique. The word for knit, kashar in Hebrew, the word simply means to bind together for a common purpose. To bind together for a common purpose. And the word can also be used in a negative sense, by the way, when you're describing a conspiracy. People who have bound together for a common purpose. That's the sense of it here. But what's more interesting is the way Samuel says it was the soul of Jonathan that is knit or bound together with David. The Hebrew word for soul can be translated life or person. So the better sense of this verse is that Jonathan's life was united with the life of David. Notice also the specific way in which this union is happening. Neither Jonathan nor David were the actors causing the union. It's in a passive voice. The cause is outside either David or Jonathan. Something outside either of them is doing the knitting. Secondly, notice the direction of the union. Jonathan is united to David, not the other way around. It's not David being united to Jonathan. That's important because it tells us that Jonathan was the one placing David above himself in this relationship. And you can see this one-way nature, the one-way nature of this relationship, in some of what things Samuel writes next. Because, for example, we're told that Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. That would indicate Jonathan's being drawn selflessly toward David by his love for David. So it's coming from Jonathan to David. He loves David with the kind of love that the New Testament would call agape love. Now, it's probably worth a moment to stop here at this point and just acknowledge something that you might read, and it's become even more popular of late, this perverted sense that the Bible's indicating homosexual love here. 
that this verse has sometimes been increasingly so interpreted to be proof that the Bible endorses homosexual love. But as you read the text, without looking any deeper than just the overall text, it clearly is describing a kind of selfless devotion of one man for another without any sexual implication at all in the text. In fact, if we go a little deeper and we look at the original Hebrew here, the word for love in this verse is never used in the Bible to describe homosexual love. There are other Hebrew words for that. The love Jonathan felt for David is akin to the love a son has for his father or a disciple for his master. And his love is all the more striking, of course, when you remember that Jonathan is about 30 years older than David is. And as you see this in your mind's eye, you may have imagined two young people or equally aged people, but here we're talking about someone who's 30 years older pledging his undying love to a man who's 30 years younger in the sense of a son to a father. It's a very stark role reversal to say nothing of the fact that Jonathan is the heir apparent and David is not, at least in human terms. Clearly, God is supernaturally drawing Jonathan to David in a kind of soul relationship that, requ- that leads Jonathan to initiate a covenant with David. A covenant is a lifelong, unbreakable commitment that centers around defense of the other. Not necessarily in a military sense, but in every sense. Defending honor, defending property, defending rights, defending life, etc. And there are several types of... Of covenants, some depended on each party to keep terms, their parity covenants. Each side has obligations and duties, and the covenant would be enforced so long as both kept their end of the bargain. Parity covenants. Then there were other covenants that were one way covenants, suzerainty covenant. They, these covenants only depended on the faithfulness of the one who was granting the terms to the other. The other was simply a recipient and had no part to play in it, except that they were the beneficiary of it. In this case, Jonathan makes a one-way, or as I said, suzerainty covenant with David. In verse 3, Samuel says clearly, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Again, this is not a covenant which David made one with Jonathan, or David and Jonathan made covenant together. This is one in which Jonathan makes it to David. So in this case, Jonathan is granting to David a covenant. This would fit with the age and with the respective positions. When you see one-way covenants, they are almost always, if not always, from the greater to the lesser. For the greater has the power to grant something that the lesser does not have. So from a king to a subject, from God to us, from God to Abraham. And in this case, from Jonathan, the heir apparent, the older, to David, the one who is not in the family of Saul and younger. Secondly, notice that the giving of the covenant was a result of Jonathan's love for David. The love in Jonathan's heart prompted him to grant David this covenant so we can say it was an act of love. That's important because what it shows is that there is nothing in this for Jonathan. Jonathan is giving up to gain this covenant. He's not gaining anything by offering this covenant to David, at least nothing that we can see in human terms. And then finally, Jonathan seals the covenant. Sealing in this case would be similar to what we might think of as signing a covenant or initiating it through some legal means. Here you see it initiated or sealed by Jonathan placing his robe, his royal robe, on David and bestowing upon David his royal armament, his armor, his belt, his sword, and so on. This is a very significant moment. And take your mind back to where we were just a moment ago in chapter 17 of Samuel when I described the scene of David getting Saul's armor. And we said there was significance to that, there or at least symbolic significance to it. Here you see not symbolic but literal significance. Jonathan is the heir apparent 
And he has just transferred that heir right to David. He is signifying that from his point of view, David is now the next king. David is now the one who will inherit the throne. He is voluntarily giving this up to David. And he signifies it with the robe. He gives him the armor as well. And the armor signifies David's future leadership of the army. And with that comes the authority to kill any who oppose your rule. So Jonathan is abdicating the the throne and essentially giving David right to kill him, should that have been a necessity, I guess. But the point is, he is laying down his life in front of David. Joyce Baldwin said, In our political world, where power plays such an important role, what would be thought of a prince who voluntarily renounced his throne in favor of a friend whose character and godly faith he admired? Interesting, huh? That that's the qualities that brought him to this point. The admiration he had for David in those ways. So, we have to ask here, what would cause Jonathan to do such a thing? And the answer is back in verse 1. Jonathan's soul was knitted or united in love with David. And of course, we know, as we saw already, it's an outside force creating this union, as we said. And we know who that outside force is. The Lord is the one holding the knitting needles, bringing Jonathan to a point of such love and admiration for David that he would produce in Jonathan a desire to take this act for David's benefit. He produces a love that triggers in Jonathan a desire to submit to David's authority. And why was the Lord creating that strong, loving bond between Jonathan and David to affect this outcome? Well, the answer is obvious, right? So that Jonathan won't oppose David's rise to power. To say nothing of the pictures that are being created in the process, but just to the the politics of the day, Jonathan has now pledged to support David as king against his own personal interests. He could have tried to hold on to power, right? Jonathan could have said, like his father, I'm going to get what I have coming to me. But instead, he's willingly giving that up to the one who rightfully deserved it. And of course, ironically, Jonathan would never have held the throne anyway. This is a classic example of the phrase that says, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he could not lose. This is exactly that situation. Spurgeon said, Jonathan's was a singular love because of the pureness of its origin. Jonathan loved David out of a great admiration of him. When he saw him come back with the head of Goliath in his hand, he loved him as a soldier loves a soldier, as a brave man loves another brave man. He felt that there was the right kind of metal in that young man. And though Jonathan was the king's son and heir apparent to the throne, we find that he stripped himself of the robe that was upon him and gave it to David and his garments, even to his sword and to his bow and to his belt. He felt that such a hero who could so trust his God and so expose his life and come off so victorious deserved his utmost love. It did not begin in self-interest. It did not begin in relationship, but it began in the likeness that Jonathan saw between his own nature and that of David. It was one brave man loving another brave man. Jonathan's love proved also to be most intense. It is said that he loved him as his own soul. He would have at any moment have sacrificed his life to preserve the life of David. In fact, I do not doubt that Jonathan loved David's life much more than his own and that he was quite willing to expose himself to peril that David might be preserved. Jonathan's was a very intense love. May we see more of this kind of love among Christian men. May they love each other for Christ's sake and because of the love of God which they see in one another and may they be intense in their affection. I think Spurgeon hits on the most important aspect of what we're seeing happen here between Jonathan and David. Jonathan's love for David is not based in relationship, Spurgeon mentions. Jonathan doesn't know David. 
he is seeing David act on the battlefield, and it's very clear at the beginning of chapter 18, it's in this same moment, more or less, that Jonathan takes this action. So it is Jonathan's admiration of David's character and love of the Lord and bravery in what he did that unites Jonathan to him, not because of some quid pro quo. You were nice to me, so I'll be nice to you. You made friends with me, so I'll be friends with you. It's not done in that basis. It's based on something outside them, knitting them together, as the scripture said. It's a very powerful relationship that's built here. God is preparing the way for David by causing the house of Saul to move out of the way. And Saul will rule until the day God has decided Saul will no longer be on the throne. Until he dies, he has been gifted and called to this purpose. And as we've said already, the calling and gifting of God is irrevocable. It must continue until he's gone. And using that time between now and then, God is going to use it to school David in preparation. But there's not going to be anyone after Saul in the house of Saul. So Saul is not willing to make that move himself, but Jonathan, Jonathan will forever be David's ally. In verse 5, we're told that David goes wherever Saul sends him now, after Saul has brought him into his house. He has become a kind of captain over the army, and David is prospering in this role. The literal word there in Hebrew for prosper is not actually prosper. It means to act wisely. So what we should be reading in verse 5 is that David went everywhere Saul asked him to go and acted wisely so that he would accomplish good things in what he did. And of course the people celebrated that. They celebrate that success. I mean David's killing Philistines left and right. Everyone in Israel is giddy with the prospect of being freed from this long-standing enemy. But now the real problems develop. David's success begins to open a wound for Saul in verse verse 6. It happened as they were coming when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands. I can imagine a big smile on his face at that point. And David his ten thousands. Oops. Then Saul became very angry for this saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. But to me, they have ascribed thousands? What more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. So as it happened, as you see, one day on one of these occasions when David's returning from battle, he and apparently Saul is with him, Saul leading the army perhaps back. You can see a political opportunistic side to Saul here, right? David goes out, does all the killing. Saul runs to catch up to the men coming back from battle so he can lead them home. Or maybe Saul was with him the whole time. We can't tell. But as they're coming back, you hear the story, the women, women principally were in the cities during the daytime, men would be out in the fields, it's just about the laborer being divided in that way. But as the parade of the soldiers comes through the city, they come out to celebrate, they dance, they sing, and as they sing, they begin to draw comparisons here between Saul and David. Now, at first you might wonder, why would women decide to draw that kind of comparison anyway? Why wouldn't somebody see that for what it is and realize this isn't going to go over very well? Couldn't they have just lauded David without mentioning Saul? Or why the comparison? The reason is not that they had some intent here to make it uncomfortable for Saul. It's it's really more simple than that. In Jewish culture, songs and poetry are typically formed as comparisons. In the West, we use rhyme, or the alliteration of words, as the primary way we identify poetry or song. It's what causes in our minds the positive response we have to that kind of language. But Hebrews have been trained in a different way. Their minds were trained to look at poetry and the songs, the lyrics of of songs, as pleasing when they were making comparisons, when they were using metaphors, figures of speech. So comparisons are by nature the way they form songs. 
In fact, if you notice throughout the Old Testament, whenever you see poetic forms in the text, uh, Isaiah is filled with it, of course, uh, the Psalms, you'll notice that there's a lot of repetition. When we see repetition, though, it's annoying, because repetition annoys us. But when they see it, it's poetry. But they have a very strong structure around it. It's not just random. It's not just say things twice and it sounds good. They change it up a little bit. It's saying it one way and saying it another way and saying it a third way and saying it a fourth way. And that's the poetry form. And so to create a song lyric, what the Hebrew women are doing here, and it's clear that they're probably doing this off the cuff. This is an extemporaneous song. They're just trying to find something to compare Saul or David to, and they just have to naturally compare to one another. So the logical comparison would be to take Saul's actions as captain of the army and compare it to David's actions as captain of the army. And in so doing, they would be acknowledging the accomplishments of both. And in typical form, when you see Hebrew poetry, you magnify. So you take one idea, and when you're restating it, you restate it in a way that's different. You never say it's the same way twice. That's not poetry. And they'd have to magnify it. That's typically the way it's done. So they magnify the comparison, giving David credit for greater accomplishments. Now, I think it's both literally true to some degree, although, think about it, David's accomplishments are unlikely to be tenfold greater than Saul's. That's mathematically probably not what actually happened, right? But it's, again, poetically a way of magnifying both men. But if you listen to this with an ounce or two of ego... You don't get it that way. You notice the comparison only as it diminishes one compared to the other. And in this case, the Lord inspired this song in its exact form to ensure this particular outcome in the egotistical, prideful heart of Saul. He's provoking Saul's pride. He's provoking his paranoia. Now, keep in mind, Saul is going to serve as a thorn in David's side in a helpful way according to God's purpose so that God is preparing David to rule Israel. And you see here, I think, the Lord preparing the ground for that conflict. And I want to be clear here, we're not saying the Lord's the author of the sin of Saul's heart. The Lord is simply exposing it. It's there. He's just producing the setting in which Saul does what Saul does. He hears the song, immediately he asks, well now, what more can David do but take my whole kingdom? It sounds a little bit like self-pity, doesn't it? Or a ruse to cover his next set of actions. He's setting up his own defense before he goes after David. What he's saying is, my honor's been taken, all that's left is the kingdom at this point. His question is actually prophetic, but he didn't know it. David will have his kingdom. That is what's coming. But for now, Saul's conclusion is ridiculous. The fact that a bunch of women granted David a superior position in their song lyrics does not in and of itself mean that Israel just voted David king and that David now is secretly preparing behind the scenes to steal the kingdom. It's just ludicrous. It's as if David had public approval from these women and that in and of itself means he now will take Saul's kingdom. That's not how kings get made. On the contrary, David will defend and protect the king's honor even after Saul dies. But from this day forward, Saul doesn't see that. Saul's attitude toward David is very different. Saul immediately switches from seeing David as a powerful servant to a dangerous rival. And this changes David's life dramatically as well. Chapter 10. Now it came about on that next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul. And he raved in the midst of the house, while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual. And a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but he had departed Saul. Therefore Saul removed from him his presence and anointed him as his commander of a thousand. 
And he went out and came in before the people. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. So in verse 10, uh, the Lord doesn't waste any time in the plan here because on the very next day, the Lord raises the tension even further. And, and if you haven't seen this already, it's clearly evident now. The Lord is moving in these things from the song to the spirit. There's clearly a direction here of God on Saul's life to bring him through a series of experiences. In this case, the evil spirit's working again to torment Saul. And apparently God has given the spirit even greater freedom now to disturb Saul such that Saul is in an especially bad state. Like one of those days at work when people tell you, don't go see the boss, he's in a bad mood today. That's what's going on in the entire palace on one of these days. Saul is in a very, very bad mood. And what's worse, he's armed. So David is doing his usual task of trying to soothe the king with music, but the Lord is choosing not to remove the evil spirit when David plays, as he had been doing before. Remember, that was the chain of of activity. David plays, the Lord tells the spirit, okay, you leave to create that bond. Now that's served its purpose. God's on to step two of the plan. Step two of the plan is, David plays doesn't help. Because now, what's the focus? Now the focus isn't on building the relationship. Now the focus is on causing the testing of David through the breaking of the relationship. And so... Here again, now you have the Spirit. And this time, the Spirit's presence leads Saul to murderous thoughts. So that even as David is playing, Saul is heaving his spear at him. Just as a side note, not a long conversation here, but just a side note. You can see in this example the way an evil spirit in the life of a person can create debilitating physical and mental effects to the point where they are even willing to do things that I would suspect Saul would not have otherwise been willing to do apart from that influence. This is not, by the way, not to say the devil made me do it. This is not to say that the responsibility for the actions somehow ceased being attributable to the individual. It's simply to indicate that, as Paul says, we don't war against flesh and blood alone. That even those people who might come against us in these kinds of unexplainable, heinous ways, the crimes that we see so often now in which no one can make head or tails of why something like that would happen, you don't have to go further than 1 Samuel 18 to see cause and effect opportunities that explain a lot of what we see in the world today. All right, so back to the story. David is nearby. Saul heaves this spear. And a spear, by the way, is a lethal weapon. I hope that's clear, right? Especially at close distance. If this thing hits you, you're dead. Because even if it doesn't hit you in an immediately vital place, you're going to probably die from infection or loss of blood or whatever. But somehow, or really by the grace of God, David dodges Saul's spear. And the cause for the rage is the recognition, we're told here, that God's spirit was with David but not with him. Now, again, the evil spirit is the instrument of oppression, but the logic that's running through his head at the time, what Saul's saying to himself, is that this man now has what I used to have, and I no longer have, and it's enraging me. It's a kind of jealousy, I would imagine. He begins to see a man who is actually his most loyal subject, as if he were his greatest enemy. And recognizing God's hand is upon his life, not on Saul's life. And this leads Saul to dread, or the word dread just means to greatly fear, David. 
Earlier in verse 5, we were told that Saul sent David out time and again. It suggests Saul sent David away from his presence because it helped to diminish his rage. So now you have the opposite problem, or the opposite solution, I should say. Before you had David present to reduce rage, now you have to send David away to reduce rage. Remembering that Saul knew the Lord, you have to see the actions of Saul in this case in light of what Paul says in Romans 7 about the nature of man. There's a battle taking place inside Saul, like a civil war. He recognizes that the Lord has withdrawn his spirit from him, and he knows David is now receiving the Lord's blessing. But interestingly, this man, Saul, cannot embrace that fact or accept the Lord's will. Because that would have been the godly response, right? If for whatever reason God wants to remove his spirit from someone and give it to someone else, if you recognize it as such, the only appropriate response is to honor the Lord's will in that situation and concede to it. But because of Saul's flesh and you know, the torment that's exacerbating it, he is crying out for satisfaction. The flesh is crying out for satisfaction. So as Saul feeds that flesh, it becomes more and more ungodly, and he is now living in it. Now, that's not the most amazing part of the story, though. What's the most amazing part of the story? It's that word at the end of verse 11. Twice. What led David to hang around after the first one? I think it's a powerful clue to understand David's loyalty and devotion to the king. He respected Saul so much, and, and really what we're saying is he respected God's sovereign will in anointing Saul so much that even after Saul tries to kill him by throwing a spear at him, nonetheless he stays long enough to let Saul have a second shot. Saul must have had this second episode at some later point. I don't even mean to suggest that Saul got up out of his chair pulled his spear out of the wall, said, stay there for a second, and backed up again. I don't think it was that way, but it was probably within the same relative period of time. And yet, there's David. I'm not sure what I would have done, but I have a hard time believing I hang around after the first one. I take that as my pink slip, and I'm gone. You can see a glimpse of Christ in this behavior. David is the rightful king. David knows he's been anointed to have the role the guy has right now. Nevertheless, he subjects himself to the whims and the rage of a man of authority, Just as Christ was the rightful king, yet he subjected himself to those who were in power over him for a time to persecute him and ultimately kill him. Even after Christ was brutally attacked, Christ did not retaliate, but on the cross asked the Father to forgive those who do not know what they did. And you see a glimpse of that in David here. In verse 13, we're told Saul sent David out to minimize his dread, where before David's presence comforted, now it troubles And so he has to go. Nevertheless, God is continuing to bless David. Didn't matter what happened to David. Leave him with Saul, blesses him. Send him away, blesses him. Have him go out, have him go in, go to battle, not go to battle. Didn't matter what you did to David, God found a way to bless him. When the Lord is determined to bless someone, that blessing comes regardless of which way their circumstances turn. When David was serving, he's blessed. When he's left outside, he's blessed. Didn't matter the circumstances. It didn't rest with what Saul did. Didn't rest with what David did. Blessing comes from the Lord, and Saul could not stop it. In fact, the more Saul did to minimize David and his prosperity or his notoriety among the people, the more David's stature grew among the people. This is an object lesson in Romans 8.31. That, what shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? God was for David, so Saul's opposition couldn't stop it. Much to the disappointment of Saul. In fact, Saul conceives a plan, at the end of chapter 18 now, to bring David's downfall, yet once again, David's faithfulness will turn the tables on Saul. This is an interesting little uh, closing piece to the chapter. Verse 17, Then Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you as my wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, 
My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But David said to Saul, Who am I and what is my life for my father's family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? So it came about at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholahite, for a wife. Now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. When they told Saul the thing was agreeable to him, Saul thought, I will give her to him that she may become a snare to him and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. So Saul's servants spoke these words to David, but David said, Is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and lightly esteemed? The servants of Saul reported to him according to the words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Wedding gift ideas, anyone? (laughs) Exactly what place do you go to get a registry for that kind of a gift? Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men among the Philistines. Then David brought their four skins, and they gave them in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. What do you do when you get a gift like that? I already have one. Where was I? I have no idea. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, for a wife. Then Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. Then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus Saul was David's enemy continually. Well, you know, you don't have to re-narrate the whole story. Let's just highlight a few things, though. Some things other than what I've already highlighted. So Saul hasn't been successful in killing David by his own hand. So he says, ah, you know what, I'll just make this easy. I'll have my enemy do it. The plan is for the Philistines to kill David in battle. And Saul's just trying to find ways to bait David to go into battle, obviously, and to do it rashly. That's another issue here. Getting David to rush into something that's not required or well-planned. What's so ironic about this is David pulls exactly the same stunt later as king when it's his turn to get what he wants. Anyway, Saul offers David one of his daughters in marriage. The idea was if he could get his son to marry his daughter, then he becomes the king's son-in-law, and he would have a much greater target on himself in battle if he's the son-in-law of the king versus some random guy in battle. But David's humility and his respect for Saul thwarts the plan. Because when David learns, he says in disbelief, I can't become the king's son-in-law. Who am I to marry his daughter? And here's his real reasoning. You see it come out later in the case of the second wife, but the real issue here is one of money. He doesn't have the ability to pay a sufficient price for the bride. And in that day, marriages were business deals between families. So sons and daughters both had worth in a family. The son's worth was that they were future heirs, future workers in the family, future patriarchs, future leaders. Daughter's value was that they could produce offspring to extend the family's strength in numbers. You didn't pay for a son because the son didn't go anywhere. Your son stayed in the family, so the father kept the value of the son And family value was added by receiving a daughter. But that meant that the family who was losing the daughter had to receive some payment for that loss. So it's not that women were slaves and bought and sold as some portray it. It's simply a a financial equation. Sons have value. Daughters have value. Sons stay around. Daughters leave. So you've got to get money for the daughter. That was the way it worked. So the family of the groom paid the family of the bride 
for the rights to take a daughter away from the family. But here's the thing. The price paid for the daughter was a statement of her worth in the eyes of the family that was gaining her. So if the groom didn't offer enough for the bride, he was insulting the bride and the bride's family. And David understood that. And he understood he didn't have near enough funds to pay an appropriately high price for the number one bride in the nation, the daughter of the king. Anything he could have offered would have been viewed rightly as an insult to a princess. Uh, So David isn't saying no to Saul's offer. Notice that it doesn't come out as a no. What he's making clear is, I don't have the means to pay the bride price. So what he's doing is he's working to avoid embarrassment or humiliating the bride by his inability. But he's leaving the door open that if the king would like to offer him the bride anyway, well, he certainly won't turn it down. But he's making clear what he can't do. It would have been easy for him or anyone else in this position to have exhibited a kind of false humility. And you know what I mean when I say false humility, right? It's to say, oh, no, I couldn't. But then to move ahead anyway and to claim it so that you get credit for having been humble, but then you also get the credit of the benefit. At the time when it came for the bride to be his, he turned his back on David. So his interest is not in honoring his promise. His interest is in killing David. When David refuses to play into the marriage in the way he wanted, when David is humble and refuses the bride, then what Saul does at that point is just give that wife to someone he'd rather have as his son-in-law anyway. Because remember, what he expected David to say was, well, what do I have to do to earn this bride I can't pay for? And the answer would have been, well, you need to go out and fight some battles, and then when you're done, you can have this bride. He didn't expect him to come back. His expectation was the battle would kill him. There'd be no wedding anyway. David's response was, I'm not going to earn it at all. I can't earn it. But then he finds out his second daughter genuinely loves David. This daughter is the second of Saul's children to love David, the first being Jonathan. It's a clear sign of God's grace that even as he brought an evil spirit to Saul, working to create this tension, he is also working to ensure that members of Saul's household love David as well. Not only Jonathan now, but also Michal. This whole episode does foreshadow a sinful weakness in David's character. And that is, to put it simply, David has an eye for the ladies. Especially naked ones on rooftops. But that's not in this study. And they have an eye for him. Later, this weakness is going to lead to one of the saddest episodes in David's life. But back to the story. His response to the servants, in this case, similar to the earlier one, I'm not worthy of the bride, so on and so forth. This time Saul's ready with the response, though. This time he says, okay, I knew he was going to do that. Tell him, 104 skins, she's yours. So he obviously agrees to it. Now for Saul, as we said, it's a plan to get David killed again. But the Lord is with David. We know that. No surprise to the outcome. He wins in battle. In fact, he gets twice as many foreskins as he was expected to get. Because nothing says love like 200 Philistine foreskins. (laughs) So this time Saul has no choice but to honor his promise. And David is married. But as you see it end here, Saul is all the more afraid of David because he realizes that the only way someone kills 200 Philistines in this way is if the Lord is with you. And that starts to have, for Saul, even more dread. He's experiencing the fear of the Lord driven by his sin. He knows he's seeing the Lord moving again, but against him. And what's more, the Lord's moving against him in this slow, steady drip. It's like dying the death of a thousand cuts as he watches David just ascend to power against every step he tries to take against him. And the slowness of this is driving Saul mad. And that's what God perhaps intended. And from this day forward, even though David was Saul's son-in-law, Even though he's winning all the battles, even though everyone loves him, even though David is totally loyal to Saul, even though David defends Saul, Saul treats David as his enemy. David is effectively Saul's captain of the army, and yet Saul looks at him like he's leading a coup against him at all times. 
And so the die is cast now. What's, what's going to follow from this is a testing of David. That David himself, earlier, acknowledged needed to happen before he could be king. Testing is a process of refining impure material until all those impurities are removed. And what's left then is precious, pure, and true. That's what the idea of refining or testing means in Scripture. And when you think about what's required to do that in a physical sense, testing or refining, it requires pressure, heat, stress in a sense. And those qualities don't come out of peaceful circumstances. They require the turmoil of opposition. They require a catalyst. They require something outside the norm, something that causes us to leave what's comfortable and easy and enter into something that's difficult. Saul is the perfect catalyst to produce that kind of pressure of testing for David. Because it's not just that he's an opposer to David, it's he's someone David must respect in the process. David cannot simply kill him to do away with the oppression. David cannot run away from him. He's married to the daughter. He serves him as captain of the army. It's a very interesting thing that God has done in taking this person like Saul in David's life, someone David has to respect and pledge honor to, and then made him David's enemy so that it's really like marriage. Of course, testing produces a good outcome. And one of the best outcomes of the testing for David, not only his character and what comes from his character, but one of the best outcomes for all of us is the Psalms that he wrote. The 70, 75 Psalms that David wrote, he wrote by, the, by and large while he was on the lamb under pressure from Saul in the 10 years or so that Saul was persecuting him. Meanwhile, David continues to do as God called him, remaining blameless before men. The last verse, verse 30, Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle, and it happened as often as they went out, that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul, so his name was highly esteemed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you, Father, for the example of David, especially at this point in his life, Father. A young man who is um, so gifted, so blessed by you, Father, yet remains so humble. A man, Father, who, uh, who was prepared for great things and knew they were his one day, yet at the same time, Father, he, he honored those who were before him and did not uh, wish to, uh, to push them aside or to, um, to go against the timetable you had prescribed, and, and he submitted, Father, to your authority in those things. And uh, how difficult it must have been in his circumstances to do that, Father, at, his, at the risk of his own life so often. And, Lord, you, you give us this example so that we can understand on a small scale, what our Lord did for us in his life, giving everything up for those who hated him. Father, thank you, Lord, for that example in David and for ultimately the, the work of Christ. And, Father, may we in our own way, in some small way, perhaps, uh, follow in their footsteps. And let us uh, show that example of love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.